0: Before we get started, I do want to ask uh, uh, your prayers. Uh, I will be gone most of this coming week, be heading to Atlanta for uh, meetings of the PCA's administrative committee, of which I'm the chairman. I'll be leaving uh, tomorrow. I'll be back hopefully Friday. And uh, just ask your prayers for that time. We have a number of large decisions to make. I'm overseeing a committee to reorganize our General Assembly meetings in order to increase attendance, and on my way down, I drive down, and I tend to stop on the way and meet with critics, Uh, the idea being to open lines of communication and let people know that even when we disagree, we're not the enemy, and uh, so that's always an interesting relational challenge, Um, so uh, we just appreciate your prayer for safe trip and and good meetings that so we get uh, the right stuff done and come back. Um, when I have to bring flowers, I uh, I called this week to talk to the state of Clark, and there's a new woman working in the office uh, there, and so I asked talk to Roy Taylor, and she said, "Who's this?" And I said, "It's Dave Silvernail," and she said, "And who are you with?" And I said, "Well." I'm the chairman of the administrative committee. She got totally flustered. You know, to the point where she couldn't finish her words. She was just like, I'm so sorry. and You know, got somebody else to take the phone call. So I felt really bad for her. So I'm gonna, you know, bring her flowers or something, welcome her, let her know I'm not a mean guy most of the time. So, appreciate your prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. And again, we've come to this great book of Colossians that talks about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we're often too busy and too bored and too selfish to think about Jesus, to see Jesus, to be concerned with Jesus. So this morning, we ask that you would refocus our hearts and minds to look at Jesus. We need to reset our minds this morning So by the power of your spirit, use this scripture to bring about that mindset change in each one of us uh, this day. And as always, we need your grace, and please give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, uh, we pray, amen, amen. Well, I am so far removed uh, from seminary now that I rarely tell seminary stories anymore, but today we're going to make an exception. See, when I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in um, 1987, I was just coming off active duty in the Army, and it might have been an understatement to say I wasn't easily intimidated. Essentially, my view was, if you're not armed, I'm not intimidated. Oh, how things change. And in my time there, I became just a little intimidated by two things, or more truthfully, two men, Dr. Meredith Klein and Dr. Gregory Beale. Dr. Klein was simply smarter than everyone else on the planet, and it was obvious. And Dr. Beale taught New Testament interpretation, which was the hardest class in the school. And, uh, but then, very unexpectedly, a third thing came up, which I found immensely intimidating more than that for some reason it terrified me my second preaching course taught by the great Welsh professor Gwyn Walters had a requirement for extemporaneous preaching and what that means is you have to preach on the spot no notice you're just given a passage and told to start no advance warning of what the passage would be no way to prepare no time to study, don't know what you're gonna study. Gwen Walters would hand you a three by five card with a Bible verse on it and say, you may begin, and then he sat down and smiled. I was a mess. Other than my first public sermon, that was probably the most nervous I ever was during seminary. I was utterly self-absorbed, just consumed by how stupid I was going to look. The class was full of really smart people And now they're going to find out that I wasn't one of them. And I thought, sure, he was going to hand me the three-by-five card and I was going to throw up on him. So the day came and we all shuffled into class looking like we were going to our own execution. Heads down, you know, nobody wants to look at the others. You know, we took our seats and we, we sort of fairly spread out so there's plenty of room to fall when we fainted. And then we got started and right off the bat he picked me. And they asked me to come up to the podium, which I did. And he handed me a small three-by-five card, which I promptly dropped. And, uh, and then when I picked it up and, and turned it over, I saw neatly printed there, this Bible passage, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So I told everyone to turn to Colossians 3 in their Bibles, just like I ask you to do most Sundays. And I read... glory. And then I looked up very slowly and said something to the effect of, now this is about 25 years ago, so this is the best you're going to get in terms of my memory. I said something to the effect of, remember last Sunday, not the church service, not the worship songs, not the prayers, not even the sermon. Remember what it was like before church. Before you left the house, you didn't want to be late. The kids didn't want to go at all. And your spouse was too tired to care. So you just yelled louder, hurry up. I don't want to be late. And your son whined, do we have to go to church? And your daughter came out wearing something completely inappropriate, at least for Presbyterians. And with all the shouting that you were doing, the little one just started to cry and your wife gave you the look. Yeah, that one. You know the one. And this particular morning just wasn't starting off all that well. And you finally got everyone in the car and you weren't three miles down the road and one of the kids said, I forgot my Bible. To which another kid responded, that's because you're a moron. And then World War III broke out in the back seat. And yes, you said, don't make me pull this car open. And yes, she said, don't make me come back there. And you pulled into the church parking lot, spun around, gave the kids your best, best death stare, and said, you two knock it off. We're going into church. And we're to love God. got out of the car, walked in the building, greeted everyone with a big smile. (laughs) Fine, thanks, and you? Getting too close to home for some. And you heard the preacher say, our text for this morning comes from Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And you thought, yeah, right. Good luck with that. And yet, the reality is, at that very moment, when you're sick and tired of the weekly Sunday morning fight, at that very moment, these verses were written just for you, because they contain what you most need. They contain what you most need. So before we dive into the text, we have to know something about these verses, something Very important. And first and foremost, we have to understand these are the bridge verses. So today we're in Colossians 3, and this is a transitional text, a bridge text for the book of Colossians. It means these four verses are tying together the front of the book with the back of the book. It's very Pauline. Paul's the author. And uh, this is pretty much how he writes. And so by the time any of you read uh, one of the books that the Apostle Paul wrote, He's going to start off normally by just pounding on the gospel or on the nature and character of God, and then he'll move into application. So he's moving now from all that we've done the last eight weeks and looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now, uh, so that first part of the book is this is who Jesus is. This is the nature and character of Christ. This is Christ as deity. This is Christ as reconciler. This is Christ as one big lesson on who Christ is. And he's focused totally on Christ. He has attempted to teach us that Christ is supreme, that he is the all-sufficient Christ. In chapter 1, he focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, we see Paul deliver a number of warnings against those who would call into question the sufficiency of uh, Christ. We saw him speak against persuasive speech that would draw us away from Christ against false speculation that would lead us away from Christ, against legalism, bowing down to man-made rules and rituals that lead us away from Christ. We saw him speak against mysticism and all kinds of false worship. And at the very end, he even spoke against the abuse of the body for the sake of spiritual good, which is called asceticism. And all these things he warns us against in chapter 2. And he pounds home the idea that Jesus is enough, that we don't need to add anything to Jesus, and he rails at all the false teachers of a Christ-plus religion. And he reminds us throughout the book that when we're in fellowship with Christ, when we're in relationship uh, with Christ, when we're united to Christ, from that flows all the fullness that we could ever hope for in the Christian life, that we don't find. Fullness in the Christian life by starting with Jesus and then going on to get some additional uh, blessing, some additional thing. Uh, All fullness for the Christian life is found in Christ, not by searching somewhere else. Forgiveness is found in Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except for his name. And as we just sang, freedom is found in Christ. For it's only in Christ and under his rule that we find freedom. So all these things have been emphasized in chapters 1 and 2. So when we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, we come to a turning point. Paul is moving from setting forth the doctrine of Christ, what theologians call Christology, and now he's beginning to apply that doctrine to actual living. And it is unbelievably important that you get the transition and I'll show you that in verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So I want to stop there. Ask the question, is he talking to everyone now? No. He's saying those of you who have been converted, those of you who believe this, those of you who understand this, those of you who have been made alive with Christ, Listen. If this is true. That's the first blank in your outline. If this is true, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ. And then verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, here's why it's important that you get this. If you miss that he's talking to those who are saved, to those who are justified. If you miss that, you're going to think that uh, everything he teaches for the rest of the book is what justifies you and you'd be wrong. So please hear me carefully, because this causes a great deal in the lives of uh, evangelical believers when they begin to believe that it's their morals, their actions, that somehow make them right before God. You know, that I'm going to earn favor with God by cleaning up my life. And Paul's going to warn us the very next passage about that thing, but now he's saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, as in, A, love for Christ brings about B, transform lives. And it doesn't necessarily work the other way around. Transform lives do not necessarily bring about increased love for Christ. It is God alone who justifies, who makes us a right before Himself in Christ. That's it. You have nothing to offer in the end that will right what you have wronged. So, the big question, before we can go anywhere with this, Is have you been raised with Christ? And if you're not sure, I need to ask a couple of questions. And if you answer no to uh, to them, you're probably not a believer. It's as simple as that. And the first one starts with Do you believe that you're a sinner, that you're an idolater, that you have openly rebelled against God? Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you're probably not a Christian. After all, what's the first membership question? to join this church or any PCA church? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? So that's the first question. Are you a sinner? Number two, do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, set as the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for your sins? Do you believe in double imputation? What that means is you get his righteousness and he takes your sin. Do you believe that Christ was crucified for your sin, for your rebellion, and raised again on the third day? And if your answer to that is no, then you're not a believer. You're not buying into orthodox Christianity. You have created something that's not historical or biblical Christianity. It's something of your own creation. And that's why our second membership question reads as follows. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? Him alone. Christ plus nothing. You can't add anything to salvation. That's what Paul's been talking about here. Now we read here, if then you've been raised with Christ. That's resurrection language. If you've been raised, and first you had to die. Last year, uh, Joanne and Mike Cooks taught uh, the little kids, the preschool kids in Sunday school. My favorite story, there was lots of stories, but my favorite story was when one of the little boys asked, how we get to heaven? Can we drive there? And Joanne said, no, we, we can't drive there. Said, Can we fly there? Oh, no, not really. Can we take a train there? Well, well, no. And then one of the other little boys said, you got to die first. From the mouth of babes. But it's good theology. Because Paul says you die. Verse 3, you have died. Your life is hidden with with Christ in God. It's not the first time he says that if we go back to chapter 2. He talks about being buried and raised with Christ. And then he said in Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. So if all of that is true for you, if you died to sin, have been raised with Christ in newness of life, in short, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, if you're a follower of Christ, the Apostle Paul says, then seek these things. Then seek these things. That's the second blank. It's so easy today. Back to verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. readjust here. That'll work, I think. Maybe not. I'm melting up here. I'm melting. In theology, we talk about the importance of the indicatives and the imperatives. Now the indicatives are the B-verses. What we are. The imperatives are the do-verses, the commands of the Bible. And so here, the Apostle Paul tells us what we ought to do because of who we are in Christ. The indicatives, what we are, are standing in Christ. And the imperatives, what we ought to do because we are in Christ. In other words, you're in Christ, and Paul is saying, now be who you are. Act in such a way that it's consistent with what you profess to be in Jesus Christ. You are united to Christ. These truths are true about you. You Live in a way which reflects consistency. Flows out of the reality of being in union with Christ. And those factors remind us of a couple things that are very important. And the first one's this we should never downplay the importance of knowing scriptural truth and doctrine. For the Apostle Paul, you can't live the Christian life unless you understand Christian truth. And that means that every single one of us has to know the basics of Christian beliefs because without them, we can't live the Christian life. It's necessary for us to know the truth if we're going to live in a way that honors God. And if we're going to receive the blessing that comes from living in fellowship with God, we must know the truth, as Paul says, because the truth leads to godliness. And now there's a flip side to that. And the flip side, we have to remember this just as much, and it's simply, we can never be satisfied with just a knowledge of the truth and doctrine. We must never be satisfied until that truth is working itself out in our lives. Paul expected more of Christians than we simply know about God. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. We can know a lot of things about God and never be in a saving relationship with Him. Paul expects us to live in such a way that we demonstrate with our lives that our knowledge isn't just mental knowledge, that we're not just nodding in agreement with everyone else, but that it's something that's working itself out through the whole of our lives. It's showing itself in how we love one another. It's showing itself in how we're loyal to the gospel and loyal to Christ and proclaiming his name and living as if he really is the Lord in all the world because Paul's told us that he is. We must never be satisfied with mere understanding It has to work itself out in our lives. But Paul doesn't just leave us by telling us what to do. He also tells us how to do it. Now, it's a bit unorthodox and sounds very simple, but I think actually it's quite difficult. Because the two imperatives here, the two commands, are seek the things that are above, and then verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And I like the way the old King James translates verse 2, though I think the ESV is much more accurate to today's English. Nevertheless, the King James tells us, set your affection on things above. It's not talking about our emotions, as you might have affection for uh, your spouse. It's using Old English to talk about our yearnings, the desires of our heart, which may also be directed towards your spouse. But it's not affection as in love. It's affection as in want. And in particular, wanting what you know you need. And Paul is telling you, because you as a Christian have been united to Christ, because you've been raised with Christ, therefore set your affection, set your desire, set your yearning, set your heart on spiritual blessings and principles which are only found in Christ. Paul knows this is absolutely Absolutely necessary for spiritual growth. It's absolutely necessary to combat sin. Your heart must be set on Christ. He's the one you have to be hungering after. The blessings which are found in him must be those blessings which are your first priority. Now, the reality is, if we're not feeling that affection for Christ, that we're not feeling that desire for Christ, that yearning for Christ, that setting our hearts on things only found in Christ, it's a sign that God's not doing much in our hearts. That He's not active, that we've shut Him out and closed Him off. We better do something about coming to grips with Him and doing business with Him and closing with Christ. Because Christians are supposed to experience... A spiritual hunger for God. Their affection is set on things above. It doesn't mean we're not concerned with temporal things. <laughs> doesn't mean we're bad at business or that we're bad parents. Later in the chapter, Paul's going to talk about being a good uh, Christian father and mother and child and business and all that sort of stuff. He's not saying don't be concerned about the things of life. But he is saying, where's your allegiance? Where's your priority? And what he's saying is very close to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Paul says, first principle, set your hearts on things above. Where your treasure is, there will your heart uh, be also. Is he your treasure? Are things above your treasure? It's a good test to see whether you're in Christ or not. And if you've been raised with Christ and are seeking the things above and your life is starting to line up with what you believe uh, about Christ, then God makes you a promise. And God promises you Christ. Verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So, if you have Christ and you follow Christ, then God promises you Christ. That's right. See, in theology, another concept we talk about is the already and the not yet. And what that means is that some things are already true about you because you're in Christ. They've already happened. They've already been declared. They're already true. For you have died, past tense. We actually died when we were baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So we read 1 Corinthians 12, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, all made to drink of one spirit. And then in Romans 6, which is all about being in union with Christ, we read, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of That's happened. That's true. These are truths. And so our life is present tense, meaning right now, hidden with Christ in God. The tense here, to be technical, is present and perfect, which means ongoing. Our lives have been hidden with Christ, and they remain that way. They continue. It's not a one-time event, but an ongoing action. And because we're in Christ, and Christ is in God, we are inseparable. We read in Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And we're secure. We're secure. Our lives are part of the above. The world without Christ doesn't understand the source of our life in Him. There's something genuine about a believer that will tax uh, the brightest intelligence to explain that in Him is fullness of life, that His fullness is passed into our emptiness. That his righteousness has passed into our sinfulness, that his life into our death. That's the already. And then there's the not yet. That has happened. This will happen. And our future is described in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right now, our lives are hidden in Christ. But when he is revealed that is coming with his glorious body, we also will be revealed because we'll have bodies like His. Paul describes that in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So the already, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and the not yet. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. But the reality is a lot of us don't get it. A lot of us don't understand it. So let me tell you in real practical and where your shoes hit the floor a kind of a way why you have to get this and why you have to understand it. Because it's important because if you're using Jesus to get something else, when you end up not getting that something else, you're going to become real angry with Jesus or angry with God who never promised to give you that thing in the first place. So you'll feel betrayed at a promise you made yourself, but God didn't make you. So if you're going, yeah, I'm going to love Jesus because Jesus is going to fix my marriage. I'm going to love Jesus because Jesus is going to handle my crazy kid. I'm going to love Jesus because Jesus is going to get me through this job situation. I'm going to chase Jesus because if I follow Jesus, this is what he's going to get me. This is what he's going to bring me. And if you're just following Jesus to get something, ultimately you're an idolater. None of those things have been guaranteed. So when you don't get this and you don't get that, and most of all you don't get that the true goal here is Jesus himself and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we're reconciled to God, not that everything in our life works out perfectly, then you've set yourself up to feel like you've been betrayed. But you haven't been. He's given you all that you need and all that he's promised, which is himself. And that's the good news of the gospel. How many of you remember the bridge illustration? Those that are members will know it because I use it in the, the, the new member class where somebody draws a cliff over here and a cliff over here and has God on one side and you're on the other and they say, how would you get across between the two cliffs? And they would say morality or good works or being nice or being almost as good as Billy Graham or some other stupid thing that doesn't work. And you say, ah, oh, you can't get across. And so you draw a cross between the two cliffs and Say something like, Jesus is the bridge that gets you across. So the good news is Jesus gets you across that big chasm of sin and rebellion and reconciles you to God the Father. That's the gospel message. Now, can God reconcile your marriage? Absolutely. Can God get you through that job situation? Absolutely. Can God intervene in the life of your children? Absolutely. Should we be confident? that he is able to do that and that he will do that? Absolutely. Can we pray and ask him to do those things? Absolutely. Should we get furious with him if he doesn't? No. Because we're finite, small, we have tiny brains. He always has been and always will be. He sees all, knows all, understands how everything is intricately woven together to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for our good. So in a moment where it doesn't work out the way we want it to work out, we are to default to his wisdom, not get angry in our selfishness. Selfish seems like too tame a word to describe the reckless condition of the human heart in its fallen state. We are by nature more than selfish. We are selfists. Self is our God. Selfism is our religion. We are devout selfists. Even after our conversion, after having received a new heart and a new spirit, we're still tempted and taught to put self before God and others. And most often, I believe, we're led back into selfism through an overinvestment in good things that God has given us. Basically, we trust the gifts and not the giver. We begin to trust in our assets, both external and internal, as if uh, there are hope rather than the giver of such things. And you can see it, just look around. Some trust in their beauty, others in their strength. Some find their identity in their intellect, creativity, or success, or career, or parenting, or anything. It's when we lose sight of the God who gives us such gifts to use and enjoy in faith, that we begin to see that merely as a reflection of ourselves. Selfism is dangerous because it denies grace. It catalogs all our assets and achievements as the fruit of our own labor, or at minimum as something that I deserve. And it kills thankfulness and gratitude. It cultivates pride. As a religion, selfism isn't opposed to including God as an add-on, but only so long as he doesn't get in the way of what comes first, which, of course, is me, myself, and I. Selfism hates or ignores the achievements of others unless they somehow benefit self. It rejects the two greatest commandments for the doctrine of me-firstology. And in the end, selfism is dangerous because it always fails. And it leads to a great fall. See, selfism can't answer the real questions we're asking. It can't provide us with what we most desperately need. Self is a powerless God that cannot save. And when we've built our hopes, our security, our identity on our assets or on our achievements, their failure to deliver us will leave us with nothing but despair. And only one thing has been able to defeat selfism. And I'm not thinking about selfism as an idea out there, but as an ongoing temptation within my own heart. Selfism can only be defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, the Son of God denied himself and gave up his own life to save us. He emptied his self to save a people who are full of themselves. Jesus laid down his life to turn selfists in the selfless worshipers of the one true God. Selfism is defeated through Christ's perfect atonement for sin by which he has freed us from our guilt and condemnation, by delivering us from slavery to false gods and reuniting us with our maker and redeemer. He has rescued our identity from things that are small and temporal. Selfism is defeated in us as the Holy Spirit empowers us to follow the selfless example of Jesus, who lives sacrificially for the pleasure of the Father and for the redemption of mankind. But all selfists and those tempted towards selfism repent by turning their eyes outward and upward, away from self to the self-existent and self-emptying God who's enthroned in heaven, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, I was thinking about this and I asked the question what causes that? You know, we, we have this experience or we came to Christ, we made this decision, whatever you want to call it, but now we're all about me. And I think one of the things that turns us away from Christ and back towards ourselves is quite simply, Jesus gets old. We've heard it all before. We get bored with the church, we get bored with Christianity. We even get bored with Jesus. And just as clearly as I can say it, you should never grow bored with Jesus Christ. There's always more. There's always more to see. It's why in Ephesians, Paul says, in the coming ages, God's going to reveal to you the riches of his grace and his mercy. It's going to take ages, eons, and a a good bit of eternity for you to get into the depths and the beauty that is Jesus Christ. And here, that's hard for us to grasp. We get bored quickly. So we got a new favorite song, and that's our favorite song for like a week. And then we get another new favorite song. And we got a favorite movie that we really love. And then all of a sudden, we got a new movie that we really love. Just fill in the blank. We've got these things that we value and make much of, and then very quickly they're replaced with other things, with new things. And Paul's making a very important point here. That's not going to happen with Jesus. There's always more to see. There's always more to dig into. There's always uh, going to be another angle for you to see, to hear, to understand, to grasp, and to get. There will always be another truth that stirs your heart towards worship. And that's why Paul is so adamant to tell us, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Think about Christ more and self less. Because Christ is above and Christ is is our life you need to pray take a moment to do that and then I'll close let's pray together oh Lord our Lord we're praising you this morning for the scriptures for they're constantly redirecting our wandering hearts you to our true destination praising you for the gospel the gospel is what pulls us back to you indeed jesus we are resetting our hearts on you this morning by god's grace your death is considered to be ours when you died on the cross god punished you for our sins and when you were raised from the dead we were raised with you and were given a new life and a new story and right now our lives are safely hidden in you. God has placed us in union with you. We're covered with your righteousness, completely forgiven, totally acceptable, and deeply loved by you. When you return to this world to finish your work of renewal and restoration, we will be made like you. We're destined to become as lovely and as loving as you. And to reign with your whole bride in the new heaven and new earth. This is the best news ever. There's no other story I'd rather be in, and yet until the day you return, I'll be tempted to think otherwise. Jesus, only you can change the heart, but we can and we must set our hearts on you. No one and nothing else is worthy of our heart's adoration, affection, and allegiance. Only you, through good things and bad things, claim otherwise. So this morning, we set our hearts on you. Today, Jesus, You, not on my reputation, my children, my marriage, my stuff, my job, not on my desire to get even, to get out, to be liked, to be happy, to be in control or to be safe. Jesus, you've done everything for us and now we trust you to do everything in us that will bring you glory. So very amen, we pray in the name of your son who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Receive the blessing from Jesus. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. God bless you.